Welcome back to From Rockford, presented to you by the May 30th Alliance Podcast Network. I'm Leslie Rolfe. I'm here today with Ari Perez, and this is our second episode of this podcast series. Our last episode we recorded inside. This one we're recording outside of the City Hall in Rockford, Illinois, as a continuing as the occupation of the city hall in Rockford, Illinois continues as we try to bring awareness to police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice in the Winnebago County area. So if you hear any cars or hear any outside noise, uh, that's the reason for that. Now, on the podcast last week, we took some time and we spoke about Peter Yeager, a man who was shot and killed by the Rockford Police Department on September 1st, 2022 marking the second shooting and killing by a civilian and by the Rockford Police Department in 2022 and the fourth death overall connected to law enforcement in Winnebago County in 2022. Since we released the podcast episode last Tuesday, the video, the body camera video of the shooting and killing of Peter Yeager has been released to the public. And so what we want to do at the beginning of this episode is take some time to speak about that video, take some time to speak about the implications of the video, take some time to speak about connections that this killing has with other killings that have taken place in Rockford, Illinois, and speak about where the investigation stands currently. So I'll first start off by saying... It never gets easier to watch any of these videos. And my first inclination whenever one of these videos is released is always to not watch the video. It always takes me a second or a third time clicking on the link or returning to the message somebody may have sent me about the video before I'm prepared to watch the video. I think the most triggering of the videos that I've seen in the last two years was the murder of Faust and Guaytigo, specifically because it was the first time in which somebody was killed by the law enforcement in Winnebago County since I have been involved with the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice, and that the video had been released in that type of a manner. And watching that video at the time in which it happened, I believed and I thought that it would have a bigger reaction from the community. I thought there'd be a, a larger outcry of of people coming out against the murder of Faust and Guaytigo and instead a lot of what happened were people justifying the actions of the police officers a lot of people championing and celebrating the actions of the police officers and they use Faust and Guaytigo having a pole in his hand being at the bottom of the stairs inside of his home as a justification for this shooting and killing and once that happened it as many things in the, the, the first two years of this struggle has done for me, it awakened me to another aspect, another aspect of the, what up, what up, what up, brother? And awakened me to another aspect of the struggle that exists, and that is the struggle to get people to tap into their empathy after these killings happen. I think a lot of times people's first inclination is to criminalize or to to vilify the person who has been killed by the police officers because people want to believe in the institution of policing, because people want to believe in the things that this country says that it stands for. And it's once we can get people to put themselves, instead of the shoes of the police officer, instead of putting themselves in the, 
position of the institution to put themselves in the shoes of the victim, to put themselves in the, the position of the citizen who is having probably one of the worst days, worst moments of their lives and is in need of help desperately. And instead of receiving that help, what they receive is our bullets. What they receive is violence. And so when the video of Peter Yeager was released, we were already told that Peter Yeager had a gun. We were already told that Peter Yeager had said he was going to commit suicide by cop. When you watch the video, they also released the 911 call in which you can hear Peter Yeager speak about how if the police came, he was going to commit suicide by cop. And one of the things that has regularly been something that we've tried to speak to people about is the fact that this concept of committing suicide by cop is indicative of somebody going through a mental health crisis. It's indicative of somebody who is in need of some type of psychiatric uh, assistance. And and when you watch the video from that perspective, when you watch the video and you empathize with Peter Yeager as somebody going through a mental health crisis, as somebody who needs uh, psychiatric attention, then you can understand why it is a tragedy for him to be killed, why it, why it is a crime for him to be killed, why it is wrong for him to be killed, why it's not justifiable for him to be killed, and why that situation should have been led by people with empathy, not people uh, who were ready to implement violence. And so you see the police officers, when the video starts, the police officers are already inside the garage of the home. The police officers, you don't hear any gunshots firing, you don't hear any any type of uh, weapons hap or weapons being used you hear you do hear raised voices and the police officers go and they enter into the home from the garage and within two three seconds Peter Yeager is shot and killed they you hear them say hands 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 three or four times and then Peter Yeager is shot down multiple times four times he's shot and I don't in the video I don't see the gun I've asked other people they don't see the gun initially in the video but Regardless of whether or not you do see the gun, the police officers knew when they entered the situation that it was somebody who had a weapon, that it was somebody who was suicidal. And I don't believe that Peter Yeager's wife called the police for them to come and execute him. I believe she called the police to come and help him. He was already threatening to take his own life. The, the police officers, the people who came to to assist the man who was threatening to take his own life should not have come there with the desire to take his life themselves. Uh, and on that note, I'll pass it over to Ari, and Ari will expand upon some of his opinions and thoughts about that. I think what sticks out to me the most is what you had touched on a little bit is they knew. They knew what they were walking into. They knew exactly what they were stepping into. It was just they, were, they had a an indifference to it. They had an indifference to this human being who was going through this crisis. And it reminds me of incidents like this we have seen throughout Robert's history. It reminds me of uh, Logan Bell's grandmother calling the police because she thought he might hurt himself. And police officers getting there and chasing him and shooting him 16 times. It remind me of police officers having interactions with Kerry Blake uh, the morning of the day that Kerry Blake was murdered and noting that he was going through a mental health crisis and still invading his home and killing him. So it, it just goes to show the the treatment of people who are go, undergoing uh, crisis, mental health crisis as if they are obstacles or 
things to be taken out and not as human beings who need help. And this is what happens when we put the police officers to be a, a, a band-aid to all the wounds of this city. That What's going to happen is police officers are going to get in there and they're going to deepen that wound. They're going to make that a mortal wound. That's what happens in this city. That's what happens. We cannot, we should not put all our energy and efforts into having the police solve all our problems. The police should not be involved in mental health. We've seen, uh, I talked about it a little bit the, in this uh, last week, I believe, the crisis response team. We do not need pol- people who are undergoing mental health crisis. They don't need to be confront. First thing they see is a gun in their face or be expected to comply to orders within a second. And like you said, I never saw a gun in that video neither. But it just goes to show the 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 lack of care for humanity within inside the institution of policing, and that's not something that we can get rid of. That's not something that we can uh, reform. These police officers are coming to the scenes, coming to these situations, and not viewing people, not looking at people, not having care for people, not having empathy for people, but just looking at objects to be taken out looking at the, the very nature of their job is to dehumanize them. The very nature of their job is to exert force. So when you get police officers in these, uh, in these situations, in these high-pressure situations, they're going to shoot a gun. They're going to exert their force. They're going to do exactly what they know how to do, and that's kill somebody. So really, it's just... It was difficult to watch because we have seen it so much, and we had it's, it's, it's difficult not to be numb to it. It's difficult not to uh, look at this and try to lump it in with the rest, but it's important that we look at this. Peter Yeager was a human being. Peter Yeager was a member of the city, a member of Rockford. And the longer we look at this situation like, oh, well, that don't have nothing to do with me, the more we allow more people to be endangered, by the police who are undergoing these crises. That's what they are, a crisis. A crisis, a person in need of help. Nothing more. Not an obstacle, not an object, but a human being in need of care. So, as it stands now, since Tyrus Jones was shot on October 2nd, 2020, the body camera footage involving his shooting, well, there was no body camera footage for his shooting, but we believe it to be dash camera video footage of the shooting of Tyrus Jones, possibly also to be camera footage from nearby businesses in the area. None of those things have been released or were ever released by the Rockford Police Department. When Denzel Duvant was assaulted and beat, the Rockford Police Department did not have body cameras, and there was no significant reason to have the dash camera footage be released and so that's those are both incidences where an act of violence was perpetuated by the police department and there was no there was no video evidence released freely by the police department or the city of rockford to have transparency with the with the community then Faustin Guaitigo was shot and killed April 10th, 2021. Following that, Jose Gonzalez Jr. was shot while running away on, uh, excuse me, on April 11th, 2021. And I think within a week, both of those incidences happening, body camera footage from the Winnebago County Sheriff deputies was released, which showed the killing of Faustin Guaitigo and dash camera video footage from the Jose Gonzalez Jr. shooting was released, but that didn't show anything very significant. 
surrounding the shooting of Jose Gonzalez Jr. And since then, the next two shootings that occurred were both this year. Both of those have had body camera video footage released. And I, I bring all those things up and say all those things because I think that it is a, a very, very likely that the most heinous of these shootings as far as to the visual eye is probably the shooting of Tyrus Jones. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that all of these other incidents have had footage released from it and that specific incident hasn't. And I think one of the things that we need to to build collectively is a collective understanding that we cannot allow for this car go by a collective understanding that we cannot allow for our technology to be more advanced than our empathy which is something that I've, I've stated multiple times before and that's what really stood out to me when Faustin Guaitigo's body camera video footage was or the murdering of Faustin Guaitigo's body camera footage was released was that people were even though we had a visual representation of it for us to see here in Winnebago County, the consciousness and the empathy of the people in the community was not at the level that it was needed for the proper reaction to come from it. And based on the history of the Rockford Police Department, the history of Winnebago County Sheriff deputies and law enforcement in this area, it is very feasible that in a short amount of time or in a, in a in, in the near future, it will be a more heinous video that is released. It will be a more heinous shooting that happens. But if we have not gotten our consciousness, if we have not gotten our empathy to the levels that they need to be, we will see still a lack of results even from that shooting happening. So I think a good segue into our next topic is to speak about what would have and what should have happened to Peter Yeager based on how the system is currently set up and set in place and what should have happened what would have happened if he was not shot and killed is he would have been arrested and he would have went to jail and he would have went through the process of quote-unquote having his day in court and one of the things that that day in court is supposed to entitle you to is the belief that you're innocent until proven guilty and as things sit right now currently in 2022 in Rockford, Illinois, and Winnebago County, when you are charged with a crime, when you are arrested after being charged with a crime, you deal with the type of you deal with the type of circumstances that somebody who is believed to be guilty deals with. You go inside of jail and have your freedom taken away. If you don't have if you have if you have a court date and you have bail set, if you don't have enough money, to pay that bail, then you'll have to sit inside that jail until either you come up with that money, the bail is lowered, or you have your day in court. And each of those things can vary on the amount of time that they take. And all the way up until that trial takes place, you are supposed to be innocent and believed to be innocent. But if you don't have the right amount of money, if you are not the right demographic of person, you will deal with all the consequences of somebody who's been found guilty. And that is an injustice. So the portion that has drawn the most conversation in the last week to week and a half has been the portion about the bail reform. And it's been used a lot to try to rile up people's fears and to try to get people to be opposed to this, to this change. And in truth, the biggest difference that is going to occur from December 
2022 to January 1st, 2023, is that people who are poor will no longer be penalized for being poor in the system of bail. People who are rich will no longer get privileges in the system of bail simply for being rich. Right now, the majority of the things that people are going to be released for in January 1st, 2023, are things that people right now still have bail set for. And if you have enough money to pay for that bail, then you can get out, whether you end up being found innocent or guilty of whatever the charge is. And I think a lot of times when we begin to speak about issues in this country, people don't people don't add into the issue the role that capitalism and the role that being able to gain money has into some of the the injustices that exist. And at its core, this is an issue of injustice that is completely centered on making money, completely centered on capitalism. And I think one of the things that we we have to do the job of articulating to people who, who don't understand this already, who don't understand these things already, is that 60% of people who are inside of jail are have not been convicted of a crime yet. 60% of people inside of jail have not yet been convicted of a crime, and that is an injustice. And the fact that we're comfortable with that injustice is condemning of us as a society much more than it is condemning of the people who have been accused or have been alleged to have committed some of these crimes. And we've seen a lot of Republicans and a lot of conservatives begin to term this as the purge law to make people think that, on January 1st, a bunch of murderers are getting out of jail to make people think on January 1st, a bunch of rapists are getting out of jail. And the truth of the matter is nobody who is released on January 1st has been convicted of whatever they've been charged with. And so if you've been charged with a murder and you have not been convicted with a murder, it is it is incorrect to call this person a murderer, whether or not that is a title or a terminology you should be attributing to a human is a separate conversation. It's the same thing. People are worried about all these criminals who will get out of jail on January 1st, 2023, when the reality is that the people who will be released on January 1st are people who have not been convicted of a crime. And so the term criminal is not uh, attrib attributable to them. And I think that that is one of the things that has to lead at the forefront of the conversation about the Safety Act. And I'll pass it over to Ari to expound more on some of his thoughts on it. I think what strikes me most is if Jay Hanley, a politician, what is he trying to sell you? What is Jay Hanley trying to sell you or try to uh, put into the community? Really, he's trying to put fear. He's trying to put fear that these big, scary criminals are all going to be out walking free on January 1st. And in reality, these are all people who could be, who, if they were capable of being released through the cash bail system, would be, would be able to get out. And I think that anything that is based on that, anything that is based on fear, trying to invoke fear in the public. And I really think it touches on, especially the response to the Safety Act or the response to local politicians uh, talking about the Safety Act is the, the miseducation of the Rockford public into not teaching the Rockford public to think critically about some of these issues, but instead teaching them to blindly follow institutions and to uh, pull out whatever buzzwords or uh, dog whistles they hear from Jay Hanley or from Tucker Carlson. That's really what it, what it uh, 
what I think about it, I think when I think about it as it relates to Rockford. I also think that because there is a miseducation or lack of education to the general Rockford public, a thing that Jay Hanley is able to do is try to make these very simple things sound incredibly difficult, incredibly hard to do, and in reality, they're they're just uh, a, a thing that happens in everyday court. But because people aren't educated about the court system, because people aren't, uh, some people may have not personally or known somebody who has been through the court system, they are unaware of these things. And it seems like it's a, a big, complicated, convoluted process. And in reality, it's a, it's a quite simple thing. But by making it a convoluted thing, uh, Jay Hanley is able to strike more fear into the general Rockford public. He said in a statement that uh, judges would no longer be able to issue warrants for people who missed a court date. His next sentence was, if a person miss, if an individual misses one court date, uh, they would get uh, a, a court statement saying that they need to appear for the next court date. His next statement was, if they miss a second date, then the judge can issue a warrant for that person's arrest. So it is, it is, it is a lie. It is a, it is trying to and trying to invoke fear in the Rockford public and. Something that, that Leslie touched on earlier and highlighted by uh, in a piece that Letisa Wallace wrote is this, the, the process of cash bail, it does not prioritize justice, it does not prioritize human beings, it does not prioritize the, the person, the victim, it does not prioritize uh, the person charged of the crime, it prioritizes resources, it, it puts first resources, it puts first money. That's what cash bail is. It puts for puts first money. And if you have money, you can get out. If you get if you have money, you can walk free. If you have money, then you're not labeled this dangerous criminal. But through this response that Jay Hanley is saying is people who don't have that resources, who don't have uh, the funds to be able to get out of jail, and it's people who have died in the jail awaiting trial. It's people who have died in jail who have not been able to pay their funds. So I believe this, Jay Hanley has not done anything or said anything that will put a stop to that. Cash, the elimination of cash bail puts a stop to that. It puts an end to that. In part, I believe that the elimination of cash bail, it puts humans first. It puts people first. It is a human first centered bill or act rather, the safety act. And that's how we need to move in all spaces in Rockford and how we get better as a community. Not prioritizing money, not prior prioritizing the people who have the, uh, the funds or the resources, but prioritizing just humans. I think one of the things I already spoke about that I hadn't really considered is the impact that this has when it comes to people dying inside of the jail. and. I can't remember what it was that I read, but it was a story that came out last year that talked about just how many people died inside of jails in the United States of America. Not even prisons, but just specifically jails. And they said that it's no way to, there's no database that has the number, it's no substantial way that has been formulated to track the number because of how extensive, it, because of how extensive it is. And that one of the things that was important 
that stood out to me in that story was speaking about how many people died before ever having their day in court. And here in Winnebago County, we have seen this happen for a litany list of people. This is a regularity, people dying inside the Winnebago County Jail before ever having their day in court. And I think we have to get into a place where we begin to prioritize single, a single life. Uh, one time, I remember we were doing a protest and somebody yelled out at Antar, it's only one person, it's just one person. And that is something that, of course, that is a true statement. It's, it's a lot of these times when somebody is shot and killed and a protest happens, the person that is on the, the, that is drawing people out may be just one person. But behind this one person is an experience that so many different people have had. And that one person will be followed up by another one person and another one person. And that adds up through time if you become numb to the fact that in any given moment, it's just one person who died inside of the jail without their court date or just one person who was shot and killed by the police department. And I think one of the other things that is important about this 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 portion of the Safety Act with the bail reform is challenging our belief system when it comes to just throwing people in jail and that being the solution to our problems. So many times now we think, well, if you have a problem or issue with somebody or something, we'll just call the police, the police throw them in jail and it removes the issue. Instead of us taking the time to look at the underlying causes that leads to these issues. And I think that that is what we should be doing in this moment. Instead of people being scared or in fear that people are going to be released on January 1st out of the jail and bail's going to be, cash bail's going to be removed. We should be thinking about making sure that some of these people who get out, who have had, who are going to have had their lives altered because they've been arrested, because they've been charged with a crime, whether or not they did it, we need to be trying to make avenues to make it so that they can adjust to life after being charged with this crime so that if they did do whatever it is that they are charged of, that they can find ways to not resort back to those same things once they are released out of the jail on their own recognizance. And I, I just think that we have to do the work of shifting our conversations and we have to do the work of, of challenging these belief systems. And I think one of the things that is good about the period of time that we live in is that you can, we can look in other states and in other areas and see some type of challenging of belief systems that have been accepted as norms for so long, whether it's something as minuscule as marijuana being legalized, which, you know, it's minuscule in the, in the aspect of, there's so, so many more bigger implications, but when it comes to the people, when it comes to just challenging the fact and the belief that marijuana should be criminalized, when you look at states, I think it's Oregon, where they decriminalized a, 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 a litany list of drugs, that challenges people's belief systems. Here in Illinois, them eliminating cash bail, that challenges people's belief systems. And we've seen, and this conversation is about this elimination of cash bail is manifesting all over the place. I've listened to podcasts from New York where people are talking about the elimination of cash bail. I've seen posts throughout Twitter from other areas of the country where people are talking about Illinois eliminating cash bail. And so I, I, I think that one of the things that is also beneficial about this Safety Act is that some of the things inside of the Safety Act is a challenge to a lot of accepted norms in our society. And the accepted norms that we have in our society, the majority of them are rooted in injustices.
So I think the final thing we will touch on in this episode is an event that took place here in Rockford, Illinois over the weekend, which was a film festival. I can't remember the name of the film festival. Mosaic Film Festival, which took place took place out here in Rockford, Illinois. And it was multiple documentaries, multiple short films, and also the We Demand, an episode of the We Demand docuseries, which captures the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice from the beginning of May 30th up until pretty recently, which you can find that on YouTube. You can find that on Facebook. If you type in We Demand, you can find that docuseries. So we, there was an episode playing at this film festival, and I thought that the experience at the film festival was a very enlightening one, and it's been, it was vastly different than a lot of the events that we have been a part of up to this point. One of the things I think that the We Demand series does a great job of illustrating is the human element of these issues, is the raw emotional element of these issues. You, throughout the series, the creator of the We Demand series has done a great job of showing the perspectives of activists, showing the experience of community members who have gone through these things, and also showing the response that has come from city leadership and from police leadership. And I think that sometimes we, not sometimes, but we always try to make a conscious effort to do those same things, whether it's through talking to somebody who comes down to City Hall, whether it's through things we say during protests or in demonstrations, or whether it's through things that we say through content like our podcast and, through, and lives that we do or social media posts that we make. But I think that We Demand does a great job of combining all of those things together and doing it in doing it in a, a small amount of time. Most of these episodes are maybe 10, 10 to 15 minutes. I think the longest one may be about 20 minutes. And within those, within that time frame, a very lot of information is displayed, a lot of emotion is displayed. And I think going forward, one of the things that we will see become a bigger a bigger draw and a bigger attraction and thing and a thing that people attach to more is the We Demand series. There is still a lot of footage that hasn't been released from the We Demand series. There are still there will be future footage that is captured and, and put together and eventually released on We Demand. And I think that it is a very important aspect of the May 30th Alliance. And it also I think the the last thing I'll say about it is or one of the last things I'll say about it is that it shows how we can all find a way to contribute in our own realm. And the creator of We Demand found a way to contribute in the realm that was best fitted for them. And it's not necessarily being outside with us at City Hall. It's not necessarily being on podcasts and communicating these things or necessarily being in the front line of the demonstrations, but they still found a thing that was very important and impactful to contribute to the movement. And something that was necessary. And I think that when we speak about collectivism, a lot of times I speak about the fact that the highest form of the highest form of achieving what you can be individually is finding where you fit in in the collective of our society. And I think that the We Demand series does does that both in front of the lens and behind the lens. And then lastly, I think I'll say is the reception that the document documentary the web series episode got at this film festival was very encouraging the 
questions that people asked, the intrigue that people had. It was people who came from outside of Rockford, Illinois, who had never been here before, who asked questions about the memorials and had seen the memorials as they were moving downtown, had seen the chalk that we had laid down downtown and had questions about it. We we also heard people talk about the things that moved them within the the episode, and I think that that was very important for me. The memorials was a part was a, a were, was an aspect. <clears throat> excuse me, of this episode, and people talked about how impactful they thought those memorials were, both seeing them on the episode and also have seen them in person as well. And I also thought that the the interaction between us as the May 30th Alliance, or as, as some of the members of the May 30th Alliance, and with the people who were viewing this this episode series was something that was very encouraging as well too. Some of the questions that people asked, some of the the engagements that I had with people both prior and after the We Demand episode played. And so before I pass it off to Ari, I'll just remind people that just as much as important as I believe it is as it is for people to listen to these podcasts, to share these podcasts, have conversations about these podcasts that we have, for people to pay attention to the readings that we do, for people to come out and be involved in the demonstrations and the protests. I think it's also important for people to watch these We Demand episodes and to share these We Demand episodes and to get more attention on those things as well. I think... Uh, the director of the We Demand series does a great job at capturing a moment in its entirety. I think that it, that's really what it uh, it shows, especially this documentary that was shown in the film, in the film festival. It really, uh, you had mentioned that you you struggle uh, watching the video sometimes. And me, I, I, I personally, I maybe watch it once just to make sure it's not it's not no crazy stuff in it <laughs> or anything like that. But then I, 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 it will be difficult for me to watch. So seeing this uh, specific film for the first time uh, since it was made, uh, made, it really it showed to me our, our, our novice. It showed to me like like our our rookie our rookie mistakes, our rookie uh, goals, and it captured the 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 moment in its entirety. It captured. Uh, the state's response, it captured our response to the state, it captured, uh, it really did a, a great job in capturing the moment in its entirety. When I think back at that moment, I, I, on that time, it it sounds crazy to say, and T- Terry, I would always think about this, Terry would probably laugh at me <laughs> for saying this, but I feel so much, I look at myself and I think I look so much younger. I think, I, I, you know, I was 20, 20 when, that, uh, when most of that footage was put out. I'm 22 now, and just to think about how I have grown and how we have grown, it really has been uh, quite the struggle, quite the struggle. And the response from people, the response from uh, community members was, they were asking questions, they were intrigued, but they're also trying to find ways to get involved. And I think that's important as well, that, uh, like you said, it's no one way to do this, it's no one way, surefire way that's going to get the uh, things done. We need people trying different ways. We need people struggling differently. We need people uh, trying to achieve or uh, trying to, uh, we need people embracing the struggle in their own way, in the way that best suits them. So that's really uh, what I got from the audience responses. Uh, I felt, I felt like, uh, I, I said this in the time, I try, I try to say pretty even. I try to say, pretty pretty uh even kill just so 
because it's going to be some days where it is a lot of support and it is a lot of love that you get in and it is uh, going to be moments and times where it does seem like we on the community really are moving on the same page and it's also going to be some days that nobody come by it's going to be some days where uh, only races come by or only people who are on some vigilante shit come by so uh really i loved it i loved i loved being a part being a, in a, a different environment getting me a little bit out of my comfort zone and uh being able to hear and talk to people and engage with people i think that's always important making sure that we as a community are having open dialogue amongst each other, open dialogue, talking freely about uh, our experiences and also the experiences uh, the community has been through. I think uh, one of the moments that from the Q&A was uh, a woman spoke on her experience with uh, a person that she knew who was going through uh, mental health issues and they got abused by the police. So I always think that having that opportunity to have dialogue about uh, issues regarding police terrorism in Rockford, Illinois is, is always a, a, a wonderful opportunity. And this is episode two uh, from Rockford. Uh, my name is Ari Perez with Leslie Rowe. Follow us on all our social medias. It should be May 30th Alliance. I think it's M30 Alliance on Twitter. But May 30th Alliance, we can be found. Uh, follow our YouTube page. Follow the uh, We Demand page on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube. Uh, like you said, like Leslie, I said earlier, the, most of these videos are uh, 10 to 15 minute uh, watch. So whenever you have that time, episode two from Rockford, May 30th Alliance.